It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What is going on? What's happening? Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for listening. I do appreciate it. Remember, go to the PeteCallenerShow.com, click the subscribe button, and then you will never miss a podcast ever. It comes right to your phone or your tablet. Um, and uh, you can also go to that same website, ThePeteCallenerShow.com. You click on the link at the top. For exclusive content, you become a patron and you get access uh, to the content that only patrons get. Patrons like James and Jocelyn and Daniel and Daryl, Jan, Jim and Robbie, Nancy, Stephen, Pamela, Juanita, Gary. Thanks so much for becoming patrons of the program. You can as well. And join us all for the uh, the live streams, for example. Just one of the uh the pieces of exclusive content that you get as a patron. Okay, so uh, North Carolina now has a bill moving through the legislature. We're going to go over a couple of uh, legislative items because crossover day is approaching. This is where the bills in the House cross over to the Senate and the bills in the Senate cross over to the House. And so it's a deadline and there's like a mad scramble. Everybody trying to get their bills passed out of committees and uh, out of the chambers to send over to the other chamber because if it doesn't happen uh, by the crossover deadline this week, then it's not going to happen this legislative session. Okay, so there's a mad dash, lots of activity. And last week, we had the anti-rioting bill. Uh, This is a bill that's being run by the Speaker of the House, Tim Moore. So I kind of like the chances (laughs) that it's going to pass when the Speaker of the House uh, proposes a bill, usually it does pretty well, at least through that chamber. The short title of the bill is called Prevent Rioting and Civil Disorder. It's House Bill 805, and it got a hearing in committee. Uh, so first, under this bill, uh, engaging in a riot would remain a misdemeanor, and the punishment would remain unchanged. But Those charged with engaging in a riot that leads to serious injury or more than $1,500 in damages would face more penalties, increased penalties. This from the story at the uh, McClatchy newspapers. uh, Rioting could lead to more prison time under North Carolina bills. Why some see a danger in that? Isn't that interesting? Uh, Some see the danger in anti-rioting bills. (laughs) Bills. <laughs> well, some other people see the danger of riots. I don't know. Call me old fashioned, but like my opinion of riots is that they're not very good for a society or for people or for the businesses where the riots occur. So House Speaker Tim Moore's bill 805 increases the punishment classification from a class H to a class F. Okay, so A is the worst, I is the least on felonies. It goes from, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I. And so this would take it from an H to an F, and um, it would go to an E if there's a death involved. The maximum sentence for a class H felony is 39 months. Under the new bill, if this were to become law, it would now be, if it goes to a class F, that's now 59 months. Okay, so it goes from essentially three years maximum jail time uh, up to five years maximum jail time. Or if it's a class E, if somebody dies, it could go to 88 months. So what's that, like nine or 12 times? Oh, I was told there'd be no math here. That's what, about eight years? 
So any person who's found guilty of assaulting a law enforcement officer or other emergency official during a riot would face a Class H felony compared to the existing Class I felony. So that becomes uh, a higher offense as well. Individuals convicted of inciting a riot could face up to 150 days of probation or incarceration as the bill increases that penalty from a Class I misdemeanor to a Class A1 misdemeanor. So that's so you can incite the riot but not actually engage in the violence yourself, and you would that's a misdemeanor. But if you engage in the violence, if you are part of the mob that gets whipped up, then you're looking at felonies. And um, state law defines a riot as a public disturbance involving three or more people, quote, which by disorderly and violent conduct or the imminent threat of disorderly and violent conduct results in injury or damage to persons or property or creates a clear and present danger of injury or damage to persons or property. And so this is where the opponents of this law are like, well, we're not really sure that this is a good law because, you know, it's open for interpretation. And indeed it is. Uh, this was one of the legislative staffers who's uh, an attorney on staff and, and uh, the lawmakers you know, rely on staffers to. Uh, and these are nonpartisan folks. They work for the General Assembly and no matter who's in charge. And so they they uh, they provide the legal rationale and basis. They review the law. They do the research and stuff. And so the lawyer said during this committee, they were like, yeah, it you know, it goes to a jury, essentially. Right. The jury would be the one to decide. Uh, the ones to decide whether or not what the person did fits the description, fits the law of rioting. And honestly, I think that's entirely appropriate, right? Be- that That's what the system is supposed to be about. I Like, I don't understand. I do understand. I, I say I don't understand, but I do understand. It's about iconoclasm, right? It's about undermining these in- these uh, institutions. And we have a uh, a judicial system that is based on jury trial. And uh, it seems like a lot of people don't want to let juries decide these things. And if there is a question as to whether or not you are engaged in a riot, then um, let the jury decide. Here's what the law is. Here's what we got this guy doing. Here's the evidence that shows he did this. You decide, was that a crime or did he uh, commit that crime? And then the sentence would be, you know, handed down afterwards. Like that's our system. And so now they're like, well, we don't really know. It'd be open to interpretation. Well, yes, it would be the juror's interpretation after a trial. Whether it is individuals who damaged downtown Raleigh last summer or those barging into the U.S. Capitol, it isn't appropriate in civilized society, said the House Speaker, who said that uh, the recent events have shown that the issue is not unique to one side of the political spectrum versus the other. And this is a fair point. Right. If you're arguing that the people who stormed the U.S. Capitol need to be charged, then you should also be of the mind that the people who stormed the Foot Locker or the Apple Store in downtown Raleigh, they should also be charged. There's there's no difference here. Okay, you when you engage in violent behavior like this, there isn't any difference. There shouldn't be. Right. I've been consistent on this. And I'm frankly kind of amazed at how many people are inconsistent on this, depending on whatever political um, affiliations the rioters might have. Now, at this committee, there were two people who spoke in opposition. The first, Daniel Bose, I think is his name. He of the um, 
uh, the speakers, right? The uh, the radio speakers. Daniel, no, I'm kidding. He's the director of policy and advocacy at the ACLU of North Carolina, said there would be a severe impact on the rights of citizens to assemble, petition their government, and to express opinions under the First Amendment. The riot laws exist, and they're already problematic. Um, they're vague, um, and they already ascribe um, the actions of the collective to the individual. And, you know, what I would point toward is uh, particularly C1, where we were saying if you engage in um, a riot, and, and it does have the willful language, so if you're willfully there, but even as staff said, it's open to interpretation what it means to be uh, participating in a riot. But if you are there and in the course of that riot, there's $1,500 in damage done, which could be one window, then you are subject to a Class F felony. A first, a first time offense of a Class F felony will send somebody to prison for two years. And so, you know, as Representative Lofton said again, why, you know, why would any uh, family member, friend allow themselves to go out uh, and engage in a protest if there's a chance that an officer or a district attorney will interpret it as a riot, say there's been at least $1,500 in damage, and then arrest people and charge them uh, with a Class F felony? Um, I think there needs to be a lot of changes to this law. I think it's, uh, you know, it sends the wrong message um, and it will have severe consequences, especially uh, for people of color. Uh, so thank you for li- taking my comments. Well, yeah, for people of color, why would that have, why would that be more impactful on people of color? Um, do you notice what's missing in his, uh, in his comments there? The link, right? The link between me showing up at a protest, at a demonstration of some kind, right? Marching, chanting, whose streets, Pete's streets, my streets, not your streets, right? I'm running around chanting and stuff. And then there's some violence that breaks out. And all of a sudden, I get charged. How, like, these are two separate things in his view. There's a link, though, that he's not acknowledging. And what is that link, right? Yeah, it's me beating somebody up or it's me throwing a brick through a window right it's me engaging in the violent activity the riotous activity that's that's the key point here so do you have evidence that i was actually doing these things right that would be up for the jury to decide when presented with evidence in court now here's the evidence i have uh for uh going to general equipment rental i've been there i got my weed eater from them and uh, I, I, we don't have our house yet, but when we do have our house, when I start doing the projects around the house, they've got tons of equipment. I've been over there a couple times and looked at a lot of this equipment, and it's pretty awesome. And um, I don't think I have enough property, actually, to, uh, to really warrant some of the massive pieces of equipment that I would like to try. <laughs> it's only, yeah, <laughs> like some of these pieces of equipment are so large, I'm not sure... Uh, they'll even fit on my property because <laughs> we have a pretty small lot. But uh, but I I might give it a shot. I just want to see. So uh, by the way, they have ma- they have tons of parking out front. So if you're a contractor and you need to get a piece of equipment, you can bring you know the whole truck there, the flatbed and everything, and load it up. Um, and uh, they will show you how to use all of this equipment. So if you're just using it for the one project and you've never used it before and you're never going to use it again, you're still going to know how to use it. Okay. They're also your official licensed. Husqvarna and Honda outdoor power equipment sales and service provider means they know all of the yard equipment, all the outdoor equipment, and that's why I got my weed whacker from them. and uh, And they know the difference between the models and the series. And like, and I ran like, cause I was asking questions when I was over there. 
about the weed eater, I was like, okay, so what's the difference between this one and that one? Because there's a price difference and, oh, well, this one has more power and this one's battery lasts longer and all of that. So they can answer all of these questions for you. Go uh, check out the inventory at generalrents.com or go on into the store. It's located uh, at the intersection of Merriman Avenue and Reams Creek Road in Weaverville, family owned and operated for three generations, General Equipment Rental, generalrents.com and think outside your toolbox. Uh, all right, so you heard from Daniel Bose from the ACLU of North Carolina, and he's like, oh, I'm not really sure about this law. You know, it could, you know, have a chilling effect. People want to go down and demonstrate, but oh my gosh, if a riot breaks out, like, I could go to prison for two years. So here's an idea. Um, maybe don't engage in the riotous behavior. Like, I'm just, uh, like, I'm just spitballing on that one, but I'm thinking if you're not engaging in the violent behavior, then you are less likely to be charged. Now, I understand that if you're out there and you're running around and you're protesting and somebody next to you starts throwing some stuff at the cops and then everybody gets arrested and you're the slowest person, right? Which is really kind of the rule of thumb here. When you're going to go and engage in a riot, uh, you don't have to be the fastest. You just can't be the slowest. That's the that's the key. It also works, by the way, when you're out in the wild, uh, and you may be getting hunted by some predator animal, you know, you don't have to be the fastest. You just can't be the slowest. Well, I mean, you can be the slowest, but it's just, just a, it's a different outcome. <laughs> There's a different result. So uh, I understand that, you know, people get wrongfully charged. I, I do understand that. But here's the other thing. Maybe the folks who organize the demonstrations, maybe now there's more of an incentive for you guys to make sure that it doesn't get violent. Because all the last year, with all of these protests that miraculously, unexpectedly turn into violent clashes, when they book them, they start their little marches and stuff, and they do them, you know, right around five or six o'clock. Oh, that's because that's when people get out of work in a pandemic that everyone's on lockdown. But that's when everybody's getting out of work and school. And so we'll do it at five o'clock. And oh, look at that. The sun goes down. And then the peaceful demonstrators go home. And then all of a sudden, the violent people show up, right? Well, guess what? You're not going to get arrested if you're not as if you're not part of that violent crowd that showed up. So that, that that's a helpful delineation as well. But maybe there's more of an impetus, uh, an incentive for people, the organizers that wanted to remain peaceful and don't want a criminal record, right, um, to ensure that this doesn't happen by policing their own. By being in the middle of the demonstration and you see somebody start to act up and, and start to get violent, then there would be more of an incentive for the people that are allied with that person to say, stop doing that, right? Or to turn that person over. Ah, uh, see, this is the rub. Maybe you don't want to turn the person over because maybe you kind of sort of really do want to engage in some violence because you think that it's appropriate. You think this is the way to get stuff done, to change things, right? Maybe that's the case. Melissa Price Crom, the director for the North Carolina Voters for Clean Elections, um, she also spoke at this committee uh, against the bill. The First Amendment guarantees both free speech and freedom of assembly. It does. And it's a mechanism for responding to the deficits in the functioning of other rights. Okay. Um, that's true. It does. The First Amendment and the right to assemble, for, right, uh, and free speech, right, protected in the First Amendment. She is correct right there in the First Amendment. Um, I noticed, though, that all of the people that were citing the First Amendment and its protections for speech and assembly, did, do you notice what word they omit 
in their criticism of this bill? The word is peaceably. <laughs> peaceably. I wonder why they, uh, they omit that word. What is it about the word peaceably that might undermine their argument? Why else would you ignore the First Amendment language that says you have the right to peaceably assemble? Because if you're not peaceably assembling, then you don't have a right to do that. You do not have the right to burn someone's business down. You don't have the right to attack people because they disagree with your politics. You don't have the right to do that. Don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. It's really pretty simple. And that's what this law is aimed at doing is if you're going to whip up a whole bunch of people to go break stuff and hurt people, then we're going to hold you liable. Not only that, by the way, not only with the increased penalties, they're also going to allow, here's the, I've got the law here, or the bill rather, any person um, whose person or property is injured by reason of a violation of this section may sue and recover from the violator three times the actual damages sustained as well as court costs and attorney's fees. So three times the damages. So they're going to make you pay as well. Um, let me go back to this... Uh, Melissa Price Crom from the NCVCE. Things like the right to vote, the right to a fair trial without being murdered by police. As many rights have come under attack, many people see that protest is the only way that they can be heard. These anti-protest laws, which are growing across the nation in the past year, let's just be honest, they're anti-Black Lives Matter bills. They are not about protecting peace. They are about silencing dissent. Elected officials are supposed to protect even the speech they do not want to hear. It's not about speech. And notice how she's trying to twist the language to turn this into a debate about something else. The anti-protest laws, she called them, and anti-Black Lives Matter bills. Like, I don't know, why are you equating, why are you conflating um, violent riots with Black Lives Matter? Why would you conflate those two things? I thought they were just peaceably demonstrating all this time. That's what I was told, that they did their peaceful protests and then they all went home and some, you know, rioters and looters and stuff. And then they would descend after the sun went down. They would descend on the exact same location and then they would cause a lot of havoc. And that's not the same. They're not the same people. That's what I've been told for the last year. Is that not accurate? Have, have I been lied to all this time? Why would you conflate violent insurrectionist activity because that's what it is why would you equate that with black lives matter she said it not me by the way this organization i love this <clears throat> group this uh north carolina and I, I gotta be honest i had not heard of this group before this i went and looked her up melissa price crom the director of north carolina voters for clean elections oh well, who could oppose that clean elections i'm for clean elections and then I started reading their links to all of their uh, uh, like articles and, and op-eds and editorials that are you know that they agree with. And you start reading through, and you know, it's WRAL News and Observer, a lot of that stuff because it's North Carolina based. Then you start seeing NC Policy Watch, left-wing organization, Democracy Now, left-wing organization, MSNBC, lefties, right? And so then I start looking at who's on staff for this organization. Here are their board members. Bob Phillips, the president uh, of this organization, served as the executive director of Common Cause North Carolina since 2001. Liberal. Brent Lawrence, 
vice president. Serves as the deputy, or served as the, or still does, as the deputy director of Common Cause, North Carolina. Lefty. Thomas Lopez, Democracy North Carolina's executive director, formerly of the Southern Poverty Law Center. Lefty. Mary B. McMillan, the president of the North Carolina State AFL-CIO. Lefty. Catherine Schwill, former government editor at the Charlotte Observer. Oh, isn't that convenient? <laughs> yeah. League of Women Voters, now a freelance writer and editor. Uh, but also, this is the, uh, here's the red flag. Logan Smith, the media relations manager at Bend the Arc and the former comms director for Progress NC. Just a miserable, just nasty person. Uh, has worked in progressive politics in Raleigh since 2013. Uh, also, among other uh, uh, places that their staffers and leaders have worked, the National League of Conservation Voters, Organizing Together 2020 NC, National Black Workers Center Project, Deputy Director of uh, for Congressman uh, uh, Bob Etheridge, Progress NC board member Facing South, Institute for Southern Studies, stints at the Equal Justice Initiative, the North Carolina NAACP, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, the DOJ Civil Rights Division, and NARAL, North Carolina. So yeah, it's a it's a who's who, a murderer's row, if you will. Oh, sorry, is that is that in poor taste after just mentioning NARAL? Um too soon, probably. Yeah. Anyway, I should have just reorganized that list. But yeah, these are lefties. And so they're all opposed to it, which makes you wonder, why would leftists be opposed to laws that penalize violence against people and businesses? I'm just asking the question. Now, ask yourself this question. Why haven't I been to Mattress Man yet? That's a really good question. What? Why haven't you been to Mattress Man? I have. Christy and I, we have our bed. We got it for Mattress Man. And you can celebrate spring right now with a free box spring at Mattress Man stores. You get a free box spring when you buy a mattress from the Biltmore Collection, inspired by our very own local landmark. Mattress Man is an exclusive retailer of the Biltmore Collection. These are made by Restonic with edge-to-edge sleep surface, maximum adjustability. You got five support zones for Uh, proper and correct spinal alignment and that means a more restorative healthier sleep because you got optimal balance of pressure point relief and support Um, and so you don't even have to wait either synchrony finance offers zero down zero interest for up to 72 months for qualified applicants and they've got tons of flexible financing options if you've got you know less than stellar credit don't worry do not uh, let that stop you from getting a good mattress you deserve a good night's sleep too they've got lots of financing options to work with you okay you can actually go to mattressmanstores.com click on the financing link that's there and you can apply and get pre-approved right now and then you just walk in you're already pre-approved um five-star local delivery service as always nationwide shipping and a 120-day comfort guarantee experience the difference at mattress man four stores in Asheville, hendersonville and arden mattressmanstores.com buy local and sleep better The North Carolina House uh, also passed a bill this week out of its chamber. It'll head over to the Senate. It's the Prohibit Collusive Settlements Bill. This is House Bill 606, uh, uh, 606 rather. It is very similar to the Senate Bill 360, but with some changes. Uh, Remember, this is the bill that came about after the the settlement agreement that was entered into by the North Carolina State Board of Elections and the plaintiffs, the people that sued the board and the state general assembly over election laws. And they got a whole bunch of election laws changed 
while early voting and absentee va- uh, balloting was occurring, uh, they got these laws changed and never consulted with the General Assembly that was a defendant in this case. Okay, so that's what we're dealing with. So the Senate has a version. I've covered that in the past. The House version uh, is very similar, except for a couple provisions. Number one, it includes a section that limits funding for lawsuit settlements. So it says in litigation in which the state is an interest is interested or is a party, no settlement agreement shall be entered into by the state um, and no settlement agreement shall be binding on the state, except to the extent that the state's entire obligation for the current and for future fiscal years will be satisfied with funds that are available for that purpose for the current fiscal year. Um, In other words, the state could not enter a financial settlement, enter into a deal, unless all of the required settlement money is available at the time of the deal. So you couldn't do this like long term playing out over years and years and years. The settlement could not obligate state government to make unfunded future payments. Okay, so that's one difference between the House version and the Senate version. Um, The new section in the House version uh, also ties that settlement funding to the state's contingency and emergency fund, it also creates a new reporting requirement for the governor's top budget writer saying that the director of the budget shall report to the appropriation committees of the General Assembly concerning all funds made available during the preceding fiscal year from this fund. Okay, so it's a funding component. That's the main difference. Now, outside of that, the House bill basically reflects the Senate Bill 360, which got filed back in March. Both bills would ensure that the House Speaker and the Senate President Pro Tem play a role in decisions about settling lawsuits. This according to the article at the Carolina Journal uh, that says the the Elections Board decision to endorse a settlement that got worked out by the Democratic Attorney General Josh Stein's office and the National Democratic Party election lawyer Mark Elias uh, during the last election cycle. That's what prompted this. The settlement led to election rule changes in November 2020 that mirrored Democratic priorities. And to me, the biggest issue here was that the defendants got kept out of the process. So let me take you to uh, these are two comments. These were the arguments made con and pro. Okay, so the first is the House Minority Leader, Representative Robert Reeves, Democrat from Chatham, and uh, he spoke against the against this bill. At this point, I've got to speak from the day job that I never get to attend, and that's as an attorney. The, the hardest thing that you deal with as an attorney is trying to figure out what the best result is for the client, but at the same time, knowing that sometimes the best result for the client isn't going to be the result that the client's going to be ecstatic about because sometimes you got to tell the client that they're wrong and it's the worst thing in the world uh, for those of you in the that are still here and I know we, we don't have as many attorneys as we used to but you know the worst part is when it's a civil or a domestic claim and the first thing that you'll hear as soon as you come up with a settlement you're thinking of all the things that you just saved that client from and the first thing you hear from the client when you get back with the settlement offer is, oh, you're working with the other side. You don't have my interests at heart. And if you're a lawyer and haven't heard that, then that day's coming, trust me. But I was, as Representative Rogers has referred to me, I referred him. I can promise you he's heard that at some point in time in his practice when he's gotten a result that he thinks is amazing for the client considering the fact scenario. Here's the problem, number one, with this. This bill presupposes that because of some 
something with the AG's office, something with the executive branch, that they've got an incentive to spend taxpayer money or to go against something that the General Assembly has said. And this is where I like to remind folks that the tax money that we spend or that gets expended or that we are the stewards of is tax money that belongs to everybody. So whoever voted the AG in the office, whoever voted the governor into office, they're also looking out for that person's tax money. And sometimes, like in a settlement like this, you want to have a lawyer that's smart enough to recognize when you're probably going to lose. Ninety-five percent of cases that go into courts end up getting settled. That does not mean that the attorney is into some type of collusion. Now, if the attorney is colluding with the other side, again, this is where it would be helpful to have more attorneys to talk to this point, there is a litany of criminal charges and civil actions that you can bring against that attorney if they're working for the other side. And in fairness, if it's an elected official that is working for the other side, then in that case, I would imagine somebody's going to be able to get proof of that. But in this case, we had court after court. And remember, with our courts in North Carolina, all the courts that we have in North Carolina have Republicans and Democrats, because as I alluded to earlier, we've made those partisan. So you have had Republican judges who have looked at these settlements and said, this settlement's good. This settlement makes sense. There is no evidence of any type of collusion. Yet somehow we have come into this chamber where, in fairness, we have not been involved in all the negotiations. I can promise you, and there's nothing derogatory against anybody in here, but we can ask all 120 of us, that's including me, tell me the exact law that was being handled in this matter. Tell me how our facts read with that law. Tell me what our chances were at trial. And I don't believe that we could give a fair assertion of what that would be. But what we have said is we don't like the outcome, had to be collusion because that guy seems like he's just like those people that were suing and he's just trying to help them out. And I have to say that that is somewhat offensive in that sense. And I want you to understand why that's offensive. So what I ask you to vote against, there are laws already that stop collusion. So the only thing we're doing with this bill is passing a bill saying that we think this last settlement had to be collusion. Now, if it sounds like Representative Reeves' argument started really strong and then kind of fell apart there in the middle and then kind of kind of got back on its feet, because it did. That's what happened. <laughs> That's what happened. Um, and uh, the Speaker of the House, Tim Moore, who is running this bill as well, he laid bare the real argument that's going on here. This is an issue that really talks about the relevance of the legislative branch, and I think it's important to understand. A couple of parallels uh, that, of course, Representative Reeves and I are both attorneys. So if you have two attorneys in the same room, you actually get about like six different opinions, right? The, uh, the, the, the opinion you believe, the opinion you're paid to believe, the other attorney's opinion, and the opinion he's paid to believe, and then the two positions in the middle, right? That's, that's what people talk about. But let me mention one, one main, one serious rule that an, every attorney who wants to keep their law license knows. And that is you don't go to court and agree to a settlement that your client has not approved. If a person or an entity is a party to a lawsuit, 
You are not allowed to go in and just do a settlement and ignore that party's rights. And that's what this bill is designed to get at. Now, why is that important for this House of Representatives? Why is that important for this legislative branch? It's important for the relevance of this legislative branch. When we pass a law that goes into effect, and then when someone sues to have that law declared unconstitutional, and if you have perhaps a governor of a different political party and an attorney general of a different political party who all happen to be in uh, alignment with the plaintiffs, and it's a political question, and the courts are used as an end run around a bill that was democratically elected by the representatives of this body. Now, that is an important issue. Now, it, now it takes on a partisan tone because right now you have a Republican House, a Republican Senate, a Democratic governor, a Democratic AG, okay? And you have a Democratic Supreme Court. But it's not always going to be that way. I hate to tell everybody, it's not always going to be a Republican House. I want it to be as long as it can, but it's not always going to be. I've served here in the minority. I've served here in the majority. Representative Richardson, you've done the same. You've served in the majority. You've served in the minority. A number of us have. It's not always going to be a Republican Senate. It's not always going to be a Democratic governor or attorney general or Supreme Court. In fact, if election trends hold out the way they do, it's probably going to be a Republican Supreme Court after the next election. But my position is going to be the same, regardless of who is the speaker, who is the president pro tem, who is the governor, the AG, the Supreme Court. That is that when this legislative body is granted standing to intervene in a lawsuit, is an actual party that the other parties can't just go in and do an agreement and ignore the legislative branch. So I would ask everybody to look at it through that lens. Don't look at it. And that's the, that's the problem that you get into with some of these issues. We, you know, we talk about it when it comes to like executive powers of a governor, all that kind of stuff. Look. It's not about Republican, Democrat. And folks tend to get in their corner and say, well, my governor's a Democrat. i got to go here or this, that. Guys, I promise you, uh, if I'm still here at some point and the roles are reversed, uh, you'll see that I will vote the same way to uphold the integrity and the relevance of the legislative branch. At the end of the day, it is, you know, your voters sent you here to advocate for them. And guess what? We come from all different parts of the state. We got, we all got different issues, different concerns. We come from different parties. We, all those things. And after, and just think about the heated debate we had on the prior bill. At the end of the day, don't you want the fact that you spent the hours of your life here fighting and working and, and doing things to mean something? To not just be something that can be invalidated through judicial fiat? It matters. All right, that bill passed the House by a vote of 60 to 48, which um, that's not going to be enough to override a a gubernatorial veto, but uh, it did pass the House. We'll see what happens over in the Senate as well. Uh, If you are looking to get out and about now with the, uh, you know, springtime being here, nicer weather, you want to go hiking, you want to go camping, maybe you're looking to build uh, up your prepper supply, maybe you're looking for a go bag. You can get all of that at Old Grouch's Military Surplus. 
downtown Clyde. On Main Street, for more than three decades, old grouches, military surplus, uh, first aid kits, camp stoves, uh, backpacks, ammo cans, all sorts of uh, new equipment. Uh, Tim gets in all the time. And by the way, if you're looking to unload some stuff, uh, go uh, bring it down to Tim at Old Grouch's, and uh, he'll take a look at it. He's always in the market for uh, for picking up new stuff. And uh, again, this is real U.S. military surplus, so it's high-quality, durable stuff, and it's America-made, right? So uh, go on down, Old Grouch's military surplus. Uh, the shop is open Monday through Saturday. It's across the street from the anti-aircraft gun. You can ask him about that, too. It's a good story. And oldgrouch.com online, 24-7, oldgrouch.com. Uh, All right. Now, one of the worst aspects of the pandemic is how so many people, like hundreds of thousands, maybe millions, were forced to die in isolation alone. And uh, then, of course, the hundreds of thousands or millions of more people who were forced to let that happen. And uh, the emotional wreckage and devastation wrought by these government policies, they're going to have long-lasting impacts on people's lives and their psyches. And it's something that Senator Warren Daniel, a Republican from Morganton, says should never happen again. For the past 13 months, our state has been dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. Sometimes we've dealt with it well, but in many instances we've fallen short. If I could choose one word that best describes the last 13 months, it would be separation. Students have been separated from their schools, their teachers, their friends, even their playgrounds. Workers have been separated from their employment. Business owners have been separated from their businesses. Parishioners have been separated from their churches. And as bad as these are, the most traumatic and heart-wrenching separations have been from our family members while in hospital and adult care home settings have been separated from their husbands, wives, children, their caregiver, pastors, and priests. They've literally been separated from their entire support network while they were undergoing serious surgeries and other medical treatment. In some cases, these individuals were left to die alone. The original inspiration for this bill in the last session was from a story involving one of my constituents who was involved in a head-on collision that left him with a traumatic brain injury. His name was Scott Starnes. His funeral was held on the day that this bill was first heard in the health committee June 9, 2020. He was 49 years old. He spent the last 33 days of his life in two different hospitals in two different counties, and his fiancée, Misty, was given only one personal visit that was allowed towards the beginning of his hospitalization. Scott died without Misty. She couldn't be there for his final moments. They had lived together for eight years, had two children together, six children in all, and their wedding would have been a week after the accident. Scott was airlifted to a Charlotte hospital, And other than the one visit that they had allowed, Misty was barred from entering and at times was left lying on the sidewalk outside the hospital crying. So while this bill could be named after Scott Starnes, since the original bill last session and continuing until today, all of us have heard stories that are similar from our constituents. Some of you have experienced them personally. So this bill is about every patient who has been hospitalized or lived in an adult care facility during the pandemic, who has been left alone without family support, without someone to advocate for their care or to simply hold their hand. The No Patient Left Alone Act is intended to do what its name says, ensure that no patient in North Carolina is left alone during their hospital stay while receiving medical treatment or while they are a resident 
at a nursing home or adult care facility. Okay, so this is over in the Senate now. The bill requires all hospitals, nursing homes, and adult care homes to comply with all federal guidelines and regulations regarding patient visitation and isolation. If a facility is found to be non-compliant with, D- with, with these by DHHS, they will be given 24 hours to cure the problem or face a fine of $500 per incident per day. We all recognize that the COVID-19 pandemic has caused great uncertainty and anxiety across our state, sometimes justified, sometimes not. Hospitals and residential care facilities have made many efforts to keep patients and employees safe and to minimize the risk of spread of the coronavirus. But we know as human beings, when a crisis occurs, we are prone to overreact. And during this crisis, there was a point in time when the members of the public began asking, is the cure worse than a disease? Before I close, I want to share a few comments that I received from a a nurse of 40 years that she sent to me. And she said, elderly patients and residents aren't dying due to their chronic conditions. They are dying due to the failure to thrive. I am a nurse for 40 years. I get it. Appoint one family member who is their caregiver, screen them, take their temperature, sanitize their hands, put on a mask. The visitor is not there to wander around the facility or visit others. They are simply there for their loved one. For heaven's sakes, people, let's be realistic. Come on, America, get it together. How long do you think you can go without seeing your loved one? So no matter the crisis we find ourselves in today, no hospital or patient or nursing home resident in our state should be forced to remain isolated alone and separated from their family while undergoing major medical treatment. And even more importantly, no patient should be forced to pass from this world to the next alone, nor should their surviving family members be forced to live with the knowledge that they did so. So this bill is a small step in making sure this doesn't happen again in our state. All right, and real quick, Daniel, uh, Senator Daniel, who was a sponsor of the bill, said that he worked with Democrats and Republicans when uh, writing this up. Let's make sure going forward that no patient in North Carolina is ever left alone while their spouse, caregiver, family member, or health care agents are forced to wait at home or in the parking lot. A Zoom call to a hospitalized patient, many who don't even know how to use a computer, cannot become a substitute for the support, comfort, and advocacy of a family member standing by. And sometimes more importantly, ensuring that appropriate care and attention are being provided during potentially life and death health care situations. All right. And so you may be thinking, well, this sounds pretty, you know, benign. Who could ever be opposed to it? Actually, it did get opposition. We'll go over that in a minute. First, uh, if you're a healthcare provider, did you know that you can keep more of your own money when buying or selling a home? It's true. If you use Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team, uh, because she's the only official Homes for Heroes agent in Asheville. So this is a program. It's a national program. It's open to buyers and sellers, and it gives them back 25% from the realtor commission's goes to police officers, firefighters, educators, members of the military, so veterans, active duty, retirees, uh, but also healthcare professionals. So keep more of your own money. She's given back like $800,000 so far to folks in these professions through this program, the Homes for Heroes program. Again, she's the only Homes for Heroes agent in Asheville. So go to her website, mountainhomehunt.com, or give her a call at 828-333-4483, buying or selling. The only agent I would call, uh, you should too, 333-4483. Give her a call and then start packing.
so here was the uh, the counter argument to uh, the No Patient Left Alone Act. It was uh, articulated by Senator Jay Shudery, a Raleigh Democrat, the, uh, the Senate Democratic whip. Um, he said, quote, while I share real concerns expressed by Senator Daniel about patient care, this bill remains problematic because it ties the hands of the Department of Health and Human Services and local health departments if we experience a resurgence of the virus or any future virus that impacts our state. This is what he told the News and Observer. You see, because not a single senator spoke against this. This thing passed... um, Oh, I have the count here someplace, but nine votes were against it. I forget how many. Was it 40? I think it was 40 in favor, nine against. And uh, this there wasn't a single senator who stood against it to speak. Now, they voted against it. They didn't say why they voted against it. I suspect they didn't want to be on the record articulating some argument. But uh, Senator Chaudhary is, and he says, it's critical these agencies be able to respond quickly, as they have done, during such a public health emergency. This, you're missing the point, man. (laughs) I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's inadvertent, right? I'm sure you're only making an unrelated argument because you're just, you, you just, you know, honestly missed the purpose of the bill. <laughs> no, of course not. I suspect this has more to do with hospitals, uh, maybe leaning on some lawmakers, maybe. But I actually think the main uh, driver here is protecting Governor Cooper's administration's um the Cooper administration's power. I think that's really what they look at this as sort of the in the same vein as the, uh, hey, let's strip the governor of his powers to, you know, declare an emergency in perpetuity and then, you know, commandeer the entire economy of the state uh, with nobody, you know, providing any checks or balances on his decisions. I, I suspect this might be along the same lines. Like, how dare you say that Governor Cooper can't do anything he wants at any moment? He needs to respond quickly to these emergencies. You know, I think that's the that's the argument here. The bill now goes to the House um, and there could be more changes there. And if so, then it would come back. You know, they would hammer out differences in the uh, uh, between the two bodies and then it would go to the governor, which, gosh, what do you think he'll do? (laughs) Do you think there's (laughs) well, uh, I'm sure don't get me wrong. I'm sure if he vetoes it. I'm quite certain that the North Carolina press corps uh, will be more than happy to ignore uh, what that vote means. Because, like, honestly, if you're living your entire life scared to die of COVID, then you're not living life. Okay, you're not living to live in constant fear of death is no life at all. And I think there are a lot of people who have now become too accustomed to seeing things like this. Right. This perspective that, oh, my gosh, I can't do anything because I've got to be safe. I've got to be secure. And they start they start giving up freedoms. And I'm not talking like to government, although that is occurring. But I'm saying like freedoms in your own life. You're sacrificing things that you would do that you used to do. But now you've become so terrified. And once by the way, once that kind of gets um, addressed, whatever the fear is, once that gets addressed, then a new fear will just come along and replace it. Because once you start looking at everything like that and only focusing on the risk and not all of the reward, there's no, that's the thing in all of our coverage over the last year, do we get any of the reward coverage? Hey, isn't life great kind of coverage? Hey, 
you know, we're, well, man, it really stinks. We got to wear a mask, but we're doing it so we can live. But what kind of life, folks? What kind of a life? And if you've got, if you've got a loved one who's suffering from Alzheimer's and is going to, you know, die from it, and they cannot understand why you're not allowed to see them and why you've abandoned them. That's how they're going to view it, right? That you're not coming to see them or you're through this glass or whatever. What kind of life is it for that person? And like, oh, we're going to save them from COVID. Okay, that person has Alzheimer's. They don't understand any of this. What kind of life does that person have now? And I know these are complex ethical decisions and they should not be made by government policy. They shouldn't. They should be made by the families. So uh, that's what I think this bill empowers, and I hope it succeeds. We shall see. Now, along these same lines, uh, Senator Daniels said that in crises, uh, we are prone to overreact. Gosh, we haven't learned that this last year. Um, This was a piece by Michael Brendan Dougherty at uh, National Review. uh, said that COVID-19 rewired our brains. He says it's time for a mass deprogramming. At some point... The pandemic, the provisional and practical judgments in favor of caution that can justify restrictive behaviors, at some point, the pandemic became an unshakable moral purpose. He says it's as if a circuit has been fused in our brains, while caution and restrictive behavior can be justified by a conscience informed by the risks. The human mind can also make calculations based on superstition. And one frighteningly common one is the equation of science with truth, fear with realism, and caution with virtue. Once this fuse, this truth, caution, virtue circuit was fused, in other words, melted together, right? We found it much harder to introduce good news and new information. We lost the capacity to acknowledge the provisional nature of our judgments, right? This is what I talked about with Congressman Greg Murphy the other day. At the beginning of the pandemic, I was open-minded, like, okay, we don't know what this is. We're, as he said, you know, we're flying the plane or we're building the plane while we're flying it. And so you have to allow people to try different things, elected leaders to try different things, see what works. But the key component here, and I guess maybe it wasn't stated often enough, which is when things are obviously not working or the science dictates a change in course, you got to be able to change course. And we haven't been able to do that in a lot of circumstances, because I think a lot of it is, yeah, kind of rooted in a superstition kind of mindset. He says the fact that a uh, that a huge portion of the vulnerable population in America has now been vaccinated. Right. In some areas, you're talking over 70 percent of the people that are age 65 and older. They're now fully vaccinated. And that is the population that was most at risk. The fact that that doesn't change behavior as fast as the news about the virus altered our behavior last spring is telling, right? As soon as there was, oh my gosh, there's a virus. Oh my gosh, lock everything in. And everybody was like, okay, do it. And it happened so quickly. Yet now we're at the point for a couple of weeks, right? For a few weeks now, we've had uh, really large proportions of the population that are most vulnerable that are fully vaccinated and we are still not breaking out of this cycle of restrictions. North Carolina is sort of the poster child for this, too. He says many people who had the financial option of making their lockdown super tight simply don't go out enough to realize how free and sociable most people in their community have been. They have become unused to the risks and the pleasures of life that the less fearful or the more essential workers never could get away from. 
right? This is why, like when uh, Roy Cooper said, uh, all right, we're going to lift the man, the mask mandate for people who are outside. And I thought, oh, um, well, I haven't been wearing a mask outside because that's crazy. <laughs> it's all about the ventilation. And it's all about wind, air circulation, getting the air moving to move the micro droplets of lung juice that suspend in the air when we speak. It's all about moving those out of the area. Anyway, um, this faulty equivalence, he says, of truth, fear, and caution doesn't afflict only individuals or the environment of major city, uh, major cities. It afflicts our institutions. It's why the CDC can get bullied by the teachers' union into delaying its recommendation to fully open re- uh, reopen schools. The teachers' unions have no public health expertise. They have no special knowledge of epidemiology. What they had on their side, though, was a pervasive reflex that more caution can never be wrong or harmful. The association of danger with permissiveness has now warped this expert class in America that's supposed to be the ones to inform us. Throughout the pandemic, he says, public health officials have betrayed their view that they do not trust the public with good news. They seem to fear that give them an inch and a mile will be taken. That is so accurate, right? This is why Biden is still wearing the mask out when he's walking around outside, right? This is why Cooper doesn't want to say, well, you know, everybody, you got more than half of the population with at least one vaccination shot, but I'm not going to do anything with the mask mandate because we got to get to two thirds, right? Because they don't trust us. That's what all those capacity caps were about. They don't trust the businesses, why he kept the bars locked down. They don't trust us. Um, the uh, Even during one of the most successful vaccine rollouts in the world, the director of the CDC warned of impending doom. And the expert class has also corrupted itself. The short circuit of the pandemic has led to a dramatic tightening of groupthink among public health pundits. You can read more at uh, National Review. I've got it linked at the Patreon page as well that you can get to by going to the page, thepetecalendarshow.com. Thanks so much for listening. I do appreciate it. Please become a subscriber. It's free. Just click subscribe at the website. And uh, we'll talk with you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone. 